So 2 Samuel 24, and Lord, we ask now in Jesus' name that by your great mercy and your great power and your hand, give us ears to hear, and more importantly, hearts to perceive what your spirit is saying to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now, as we come to the end of this story, we, we don't really know chronologically where it fits. However, I do believe it fits in the later part of David's life. And it tells us here in verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, you say, what's going on here? The, the Lord is angry at Israel, and he is uh, stirring up David to count the people, to, to count the soldiers, which was a sin. There was a certain way you could do a census, and it was to worship God by giving uh, offering to the Lord for each person that you counted. Uh, we find that in Exodus 23:10, or excuse me, in Exodus uh, 30, verse 12 and 13. But you say, well, what, what would it be? Now, as we get to the end of this chapter, the Lord instructs David to give an offering, and he has to go and buy a field and buy the oxen, and the man offers to give it to him, and David said, no, 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 that's the whole issue here, is that we cannot worship the Lord with that which cost us nothing. And, and so this whole idea of me worshiping without any price is, is the very thing that's grieving the Lord. So if that's the case, I, I think that we, we might, there's several things that we discover the children of Israel were just ignoring in the Bible. You know, we come to the book of Nehemiah, we find out from the day of Joshua until after the Babylonian exile, uh, over 500 years, they had never kept tabernacle one time. Tabernacles where they'd build a little hut uh, in their apartment out on their terrace or outside their house, and they would live in it for seven days and talk about how God delivered them from Egypt and how they were 40 years in the wilderness and God provided for them with water from the rock and manna and brought them into the promised land. But they hadn't done that. Jesus said, unless you're converted and become as a child, um, you can't enter the kingdom of hot God. So it was a real childish thing to do, but yet a humbling thing. No matter how rich or famous, you're out sleeping under a little hut and, uh, and uh, sleeping with your family all together and looking at the night sky and talking about things. Would have been wonderful to obey when you really think about it, but the, their unbelief or just, hey, we haven't done it for five years. Why do it? Another, why not? Why start on the sixth year? We haven't done it for 300 years. Why start on the, you know? But I, the other thing that is huge later on is God instructed every seventh year was to be a sabbatical year. I mean, people say, well, the God of the Old Testament was one mean guy. Now, Jesus, he's awesome. That's ridiculous. You just don't know the Bible. Jesus uh, is at the beginning, the creator of all things. He's the throughout, the second person of the triunity, the son is throughout the Old Testament. But what did he say? You guys farm the land for six years, but on the seventh year, you've got to take a whole year's vacation. That's how mean I am. 
Woo, boy, wouldn't that be pretty easy to work six years knowing you got a seventh year off? And God said, here's the thing. You've got to trust me to take care of you in that year. <laughs> you can store up what you can, but you're going to need me. And the poor can harvest everything that's harvestable. So the poor can go pick your apples and sell them to you. And so, in essence, it was a system without giving them welfare, helping them get caught back up to even for the next six years. And it was also the year that um, all debts were forgiven. So nobody would owe anybody anything. The poor could get caught up by harvesting your fields and, and doing it. All the fields rested. But we'll discover from the day they came into the promised land all the way up until the last king, including King David, including King Solomon, including the most prosperous times of Israel, all the amazing kings and righteous kings, none of them were obeying this. A matter of fact, when Jeremiah began to prophesy, they're like, why isn't God hearing us? Why isn't God answering our prayers? What's wrong? And he, he tells us, you have not obeyed the Lord. In that, you haven't walked by faith in that every seventh year tithe, he talks it. It was something that um, was required by God to give back to him. That was his year. That was his year to take that and give it to the poor as he saw it fit. It wasn't theirs to keep harvesting. And so he said, for every year you've not given to me in a 490-year period, it's what it came out to, I'm going to now take your tithe. You were unwilling to give it that I could prosper you and bless you, but I love you too much to let you enjoy your disobedience and not walking by faith. So now I'm going to take it. And so, as I told you back in the book of Exodus, chapter 23 in Leviticus 25, Leviticus 26, he says plainly, if you do this, if you don't obey me, I'm going to take that year. You're not going to get it. You can enjoy it and watch my provisions by faith, or eventually I'll take it. And God is slow to wrath, slow to anger, waiting, giving people opportunity to repent, but they never did, 490 years, clear violation of God's principle. He took them and took, allowed the Babylonians to conquer them. He said, if you'll submit to this punishment, nobody will die. Just everybody do what the Babylonians tell you. I'm using them to spank you. But the Israel didn't. They rebelled and rebelled, and eventually uh, there was a, a death of a large percentage of rebellious people. But you might remember the story of Daniel, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel all end up down in Babylon. That's during that time period. And Daniel, in the book of Daniel, says, Lord, we're coming close to the 70th year. This is the time we're going to go back into the land. And the Lord honored Daniel's prayer by cutting that time a little shorter. Um, and then we have the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they're going back now into the land after 70 years. So th those are a couple of the things that eventually God said, I've been waiting, I've been waiting. You know 
your kings know. You're saying we haven't done it in two years or 10 years or 50 years. It doesn't matter. Yes, it matters. And it, it just, it's a deep thing to just understand that God's holding every one of us responsible to know his word. And though no one else does it, we're to do it. So all these people knew those scriptures. The majority of the population knew they were to give that seventh year, but they're looking around going, well, the priests haven't said anything about it. Well, the kings didn't edict, you know, say anything about it. You know, why, why, you know, why should I do it when nobody else is going to do it? <laughs> well, the fear of the Lord or a great respect for God is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And I think this story if you would, just sort of should stop us all in our tracks saying, well, things are going fine without obeying that or honoring God in that way or serving God in this way or giving in this way. Things are going fine. Yeah, they can because God is slow to anger, slow to wrath. But understand that God is not going to keep silent continuously. He is eventually going to say, you're going to reap what you sowed. And you have not sowed in obedience, and now you're going to be punished because I love you. So interesting here, it says that he moved David against them. You say, well, God moved David to count the people so then he could punish the people? Well, it's interesting because there's a parallel passage to this. Chronicles tells the same story about David, but instead of saying God moved him, he says this in 1 Chronicles 21, that Satan stood against Israel and moved David to number Israel. You say, well, which is it? Well, you, you got a couple of ways to look at this. One, you can simply said, we understand now that he moved to number them was actually Satan, not referring to God. But I don't think that's the case. I think we have the book of Job to understand in a limited, limited way that he allows the devil, he gives the devil permission. The devil's very much on God's chain, you know, like a dog, you know, running, you know, um, at the end of the chain and can't get to you as long as you're stay on the sidewalk. Uh, he's very much in control, and, and Satan, even though he has great power, is limited. And here it appears that maybe like in the book of Job, remember there when the, all the angels came together and Lucifer came and said, what about Job? You're protecting him. He's so blessed. But he, he's, he's not what you make him appear to be. The moment I cause a little pain or a little less money in his pocket, he'll curse you immediately. And the Lord said, well, I don't think that's true. Go ahead. And he gave him permission, little by little, to, to bring hardship upon his life. So here it might be the same thing where there's a conversation. Well, you're blessing Israel, but yet they've not honored you in keeping the tabernacle ever <laughs> since Joshua. They've not honored you in their ties. They're not honoring you in giving the seventh year um, rest of the land like you've commanded them. And you said, of course, Satan's accuser of the brethren, that you would bring a plague upon them if they didn't obey you. And the Lord then would say, go ahead. You have a limited ability 
but you can bring this hardship on Israel. And Satan decided the way to do it was to bring shame upon David why God is punishing the nation. And so it appears that way. And you say, well, what's the big deal about numbering the people? Well, there's a couple of things. One, in Exodus 30, verse 12 and 13, it says, when they take a census of all the children of Israel, not um, just selected armies, as David was doing, that they need to pay a shekel to the sanctuary um, for, for it. Now, you've got to understand, the children of Israel, they had a number of Tithe. They had a tithe, then they had a number of offerings that were required. Um, because remember, they weren't just the religious government, if you would, but they were also the civil government. And so when you add it all up, they had to pay about 23 and a third percent of their income. Flat tax, by the way. Um, you know, we know about the tithe, the top 10 percent the flat tax, if you would, from God that just says, whatever that is to you. If that's a widow's mite, then great. If that's, uh, you know, a million on $10 million, then, then great. It, it give that. And that was to be for the salaries of the priest, period. But then they required to give offerings, various types of offerings, for the actual buildings, this particular the temple, but also the synagogues. And then they had another for the poor. They had several different ones for the poor. And so um, here, this is one of the big ones. When they would take a census of the people and they would have a shekel per person, it would be a huge amount of money that was not to go immediately. It was go to an investment, an investment into the storehouses of God to take care of the, the great needs of the temple over time. But David was counting the people either out of fear, going, man, the, our neighbors are getting strong. What's our army like these days? We haven't had a battle in a while. I have no idea if I were to call for the men what would happen. And as he's getting older, and I'm really concerned for my son Solomon. He's not a man of war, and I, I don't know. I need to make sure that he's taken care of when I die. We don't know his motive, but it was a wrong motive, whether it's fear or pride. It was a wrong motive. And David knew better. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 33, it's a wonderful psalm, the whole psalm, but just looking at verse 16 to 18, it says, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold the eye of the Lord on those who... Fear him, honor him, have a deep respect for him and those who hope in his mercy. Well, when David commanded this, Joab, his main general, as he's done in the past, said, David, you're wrong. Now, sometimes Joab was dead wrong. He's like, no, you're wrong to leave Saul's general aside, uh, Abner, leave him alive. And he secretly killed him after David uh, said peace with him. And then he did that again with Absalom's general, uh, Amasa, and killed him. So he was a wicked man and eventually uh, was put to death for those things. But there are times, which again, it's sort of a weird thing, that he was more right and more righteous in his thinking than David. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, you can't just throw the baby out the bathwater, can you? 
You can't say, well, Joab, he's a wicked guy. He killed all these, murdered all these people after David uh, told them they were at peace. And, you know, that's it. The guy, the guy is wicked, nothing to hear from him. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. Joab was dead right. As a matter of fact, in verse 2 through 4, Joab said to him, David, may God prosper you a hundred times over. But this thing is sin. This thing is bringing a trespass against the nation. If you do that, God was very clear in the scripture that if you violate these points, that God's going to either bring famine or he's going to be sword from another country or he's going to bring pestilence. God made it clear. Matter of fact, he said it more than once. The, one of those three things were going to happen. And so, in verse 5 through 9, Joab finally lost the battle and went out and counted the people. Interesting, in verse 8, it tells us that he took him nine months and 20 days. Israel at this time was the size of Southern California. Matter of fact, if you go to the edge of Oceanside, and you go from the ocean, and imagine the Pacific Ocean being the Mediterranean Sea, and if you take that border, so Tijuana is Bethlehem, <laughs> and Oceanside would be uh, the northern part of Israel, the Galilee region, and then you look at the ocean as the Mediterranean. This is very much the way Israel looks, and it's the same climate as here. Matter of fact, when you're in Israel, it feels like you're in San Diego County. And so then you go inland. It's interesting, guys, that Big Bear Lake is about the same location as the Sea of Galilee in distance. And here's what's even more phenomenal. If you get the distance from Big Bear Lake to the, the salt sea that we have out here, it's about the same distance to the Dead Sea in Israel. It's pretty interesting. If you were to take a, a map, so to speak, and lay it over the top of Southern California, they almost fit perfectly with the Sea of Galilee being a big bear, the salt sea being where the Dead Sea is. Now, there, there's obviously differences. For example, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater on the earth over 800 feet below sea level. And a matter of fact, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth, right around 16 to 1800 feet below sea level. And so uh, there's some vast differences there, but then you go about 10 miles into Arizona, that's the size of Israel. And of course, the population of that time would have been uh, millions. It wouldn't have taken nine months and 20 days. And you say, why did it take so long? Maybe Joab was just dragging his feet, going, this is wrong. There's no grace in it. God's not in it, so there's no grace in it. It's just like pulling teeth, trying to get people to cooperate. And, and again, it, it's coming from the king, and the king is saying, tell us who can fight in battle. That's sort of scary. And we look in the book of Chronicles, it, the numbers are different because they were unwilling to cooperate. As a matter of fact, in Chronicles, it tells us the tribe of Benjamin was never counted when Joab brought the numbers. And that's the very tribe that, um, that uh, um, 
Saul was from. So they, they just said, no, we're not going to even let you count us. And then it tells us here that only the valiant men of Israel were willing to be counted. So moms were saying, son, hide. I don't want you counted. And then, of course, they didn't even bother counting all the farmers and shepherds. So this wasn't a really good census at all. But it took nine months and 20 days. And here's why I think God was putting his heavy hand on David, putting his thumb down on David. The conviction was getting deeper and heavier, going, David, 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 this isn't my will, and you know it. And David, again, um, was brought to this temptation and felled in this temptation uh, because of the pressure, the demonic pressure that the devil was putting on him. You know, guys, that, that's why we just can't judge one another. We, we just can't do it because we, we just don't know all the things going on. Remember when Job's friend said, well, you lost all your kids and you lost all your wealth. You got boils all of your body. Obviously, God is the one bringing this upon you, and it's because of sin. And they start trying to dissect his life to figure out which sin it was that God's punishing. And then Job says, no, I didn't commit that sin. No, I didn't do that. That isn't what's in my heart. You're not, and they're like, oh, we get it now. You're prideful and self-righteous. You're unwilling to, to even think that there's something sinful in your life. And, and Job's like, no, I'm a sinner, right? There's no doubt about that. But they all speculate, and, and we know behind the scenes, it was just nothing other than a demonic attack. That's all it was. There was just one answer. Satan is just pummeling Job, and everybody should have been there supporting him and praying for him and encouraging him instead of dissecting and judging him. We don't, we don't know what it's like for David. He, we're going to find out later when he dies. He gives almost a billion dollars to the building of the temple. What, can, can, can you have a billion dollars and still have a full heart of faith and trust in God? I'll tell you what, the rich man getting to heaven is like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. It'd be a hard thing. What about being good looking? What about being the king? What about being a famous king? Do you, do you realize how hard that would be to write all those psalms David wrote and be the man of God after his own heart with such a things working against him. And so now we see on top of all of the difficulty to cause pride in his heart, Satan comes in and we just can't judge it. Well, they count up uh, 1.3 million men in, in Samuel here, but again, in Chronicles, it's a little different number. And, and the reason is I told you, they probably uh, didn't count the tribes of Benjamin and they maybe counted other men besides the valiant men, but this is the numbers of valiant men. Well, in, in verse 10 there, after David's, after David's heart condemned him or struck him, after he had numbered the people, so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. Wow. Now, you might remember back when David sinned with Bathsheba. He didn't do that for almost a year. You know how much I think it is? I think it might have been nine months and 20 days when he didn't repent about Bathsheba. Interesting, just one of my speculations. But nevertheless, 
he couldn't trust God. He just couldn't say, God, I committed adultery and indirectly murdered her husband. And, and oh, God, I forgive me. I've, he, just, he didn't think God could forgive such things or would forgive such things. But now he understands, as all of us should understand, no matter how huge the sin, God is greater still. Where our sin abounds, what? His grace abounds much more. Right? God is for us. Who can be against us? And he confessed his sin. He didn't say, well, God, you know, I should have done better. You know, God, yeah, you know, I think I, I might have messed up a little bit here. What do you think, God? You know, if we are unwilling to confess sin as sin, God can't help us. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10, he says, if you're unwilling to say that you've sinned, God cannot help you. He cannot forgive you. But if you, in 1 John 1, 9, right in between those two verses, he says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Proverbs 28, 13, David learned this and Solomon wrote this down because this was about when he was born. He who covers a sin will not prosper. David tried that with Bathsheba. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Boy, that's, Solomon was born right after that. <laughs> so he knows personally that God will forgive. God will have mercy if we're willing to repent. But you can't say, well, it was, you know, just a little white lie. It wasn't a real bad lie. Well, it wasn't like I stole the million dollars. It was just a few hundred dollars. Uh, my boss owed me anyway and didn't give me that raise. He should have. You know, you, God can't forgive that. Notice a broken and contrite heart. God won't despise. I have greatly sinned, he said. Take away this iniquity. I've done foolishly. With a broken and contrite heart, no matter what the sin is, God can forgive. In Psalms 106, it says that Israel so backslid that they were sacrificing their sons and daughters to demons. And God's anger aroused against them, taking these little babies and putting them in the arms of Dagon and Moloch and burning them alive. And God said he relented at his anger and he brought them to repentance and he had mercy on them and healed them and then they did it again. And then they did it again and many times and every time God in the multitudes of his mercy forgave them. So when people say, well, you know, I asked God to forgive me, it just, I don't think it took because I still feel condemned. I still feel guilty inside. I still feel horrible about what happened. And I just say, well, in 1 John 1, 9, it says right there, he's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. And so, yeah, your feelings just haven't caught up with the truth of God's word. Have you noticed that, guys? In our sinful bodies, our, our emotions aren't usually linked with the will of God. You know, when we come to worship and the Bible says lift our hands and clap our hands and, and, and give the sacrifices of our lips. But yet if we listen to our feelings, we'll probably just sit there like a lump on a log waiting for the song to be over. But we don't listen to our feelings. 
None of you guys listen to your feelings today. You're all like going, eh, I'll just stream it today. Little conviction to those streaming at home that should be here. <laughs> well, you know, I'll just drag in late and, you know, not have to endure the whole service. You, you know, there, there's just, you can't listen to your flesh. God's word is true and he will forgive you. And you say, but my sins are so great. Oh, you sacrificed your baby to a demon? You're like, are you insane? Of course I didn't kill my baby in idol worship. Well, okay, because even if you had, God can forgive that. So this is, a, again, we need to understand the depths of God's grace and mercy. Well, David was given three choices by God, and it's the three choices right out of the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, here's the three choices. David knew them well. And, and David said, you know what? One of those choices is different from the other choices because two of those choices have to depend upon man and his mercy. And that I can't have faith in. But there's one choice where it's totally dependent upon you, God, and your mercy. And I choose that. And so with that choice, the Lord allowed a pestilence to come upon Israel and 70,000 people died. And David realized that the depth of the destruction of 70,000 people dying. And in verse 17, he ran and he spoke as he saw the angel of the Lord striking the people. He said, surely I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, notice David, how he saw the people of Israel under him. They're just precious sheep, and I'm their shepherd. What have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. But of course, this wasn't about David's sin of counting the people only. This was about other issues where Israel had been sinning whatever they were, and it was that anger against the whole nation that God brought this. You know, the Bible makes it clear, humble yourself in the mighty hand of God. The Bible makes it clear, you choose to walk by faith. Because if you have God humble you, you will not like it. <laughs> if you cause God to put you in a place where you have no choice but to walk by faith, you will like it much less than just choosing to walk by faith. We see in Malachi where the people were unwilling to tithe and God said, you've robbed me. And they're saying, how have we robbed you? In my tithes and in offerings. You're cursed with a curse, the whole nation. But if you just test me in this right now, repent. I, I won't bring the plagues on you. Just start giving and I'll open the windows of heaven. In Haggai, they were to focus first on building the temple as they came back to the land of Israel, Apple, Babylon. But they were all building their houses and their farms. And, and the Lord said, look, guys, have you noticed you're drinking and you're thirsty? Have you noticed you're eating and you're still hungry? Have you noticed you collect your big bag of money? But I poke a hole in that bag. And so the time you get home, all the money's gone. But if you'll put me and my house first then you can drink little and it will fill you. You can eat little, it'll fill you. And I will add more to you. But there's that step of faith. And, and so here with discipline, guys, if you see the place where you're 
clearly know what God's saying in his word and God's spirit's convicting you and you're not doing that. It's him giving you the opportunity to not be spanked, to not be disciplined. But Hebrews 12 tells us that every child of God who's not walking in obedience will be spanked. And if he doesn't spank you, you say, well, I'm not doing that, or I am doing that, and I know it's sin, and, you know, no big deal's happened. Well, it's one of two things. God's giving you opportunity to not be spanked and choose to repent and honor him, not by feelings, not because of circumstances, but just because you want to worship him and honor him and obey in the word. Or you're not his child. Maybe you're not under conviction because you really haven't surrendered to God. You surrendered coming to church. You surrendered acting Christian. You surrendered to the moral truths of the Bible. But yet you yourself have truly not yet been born again by God's spirit by surrendering your entire being to the Lord. Well, God's desire, it says in Romans 2, 4, is that his goodness would lead us to repentance. That's God's plan, just to overwhelm you with blessings. And then in this place of being blessed far more than you should be blessed, you're like, God, I'm crushed by your kindness. David writes in Psalms 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I I need to be spanked sometimes, and I, I wish I didn't. But boy, those times I've been spanked tells me I never want to get spanked again. But there's no condemnation. In Romans 8, 1, it says, therefore now there is no condemnation. God's not condemned. There's a big difference. Condemnation says, give up. God hates you. God's mad at you. God despises you. Just don't even try to be a Christian because every time you try, you fail. Why even try? That's that's from Satan, guys. That's Satan mimicking God. That's Satan's voice trying to condemn you so you quit following the Lord. But God's conviction comes, and it's a gentle spirit. Jesus' spirit was that of a dove coming upon. And it's him saying, the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up seven times. In your sin, my grace is greater. Get up, but you do need, as Jesus said to the woman caught in the act of adultery, go, but sin no more, that something worse doesn't come upon you. We need to remember in Galatians 6, God is not going to be mocked. Eventually, you know, you say, well, I've been a Christian 10 years and I've never tithed. I've never given offerings. I've never served. I've never gone to the orphanage. I've never helped the poor. I've never shared Christ with anybody. Whatever it is and the ways God's told us to honor him. And you say, things are rolling along just fine. Well, understand, God is slow. And and so you... God will not be mocked. If you are robbing God, if you're not honoring God, God can't honor you. And there is going to be a drought. There is going to be a famine. There is going to be a pestilence. There is going to be an attack of man or of Satan. And you have not prepared yourself for that time when you're saying, God, as I walk in obedience, you you hold no good thing from him who walks righteously. And now I'm going through this valley of the shadow of death. The blessings aren't there. And and the Lord said, yes, 
You're cursed with a curse, you and the whole nation, because you're unwilling to honor me. Understand, guys, we need to come to that place to just say, God, you are honored above all else. And this is where we come in this story. And God says, you're going to reap what you sow. If you sow to the Spirit, you live an obedient life, you're going to reap the blessings of that. And I'll tell you, it pays to serve Jesus. Young people that are here today, when you're 13 and 15 and 18, the question is going to come up in your mind again and again. Does it pay to serve Jesus? Does it pay not to do what my friends are doing? Does it pay to stay home on Friday night rather than be at that party where they're doing things that aren't godly? I'm missing out. Boy, everybody told me about what I missed out on. I'll tell you what, when you get in your 20s, when you've kept yourself in the will of God, you're going to come into your 30s, and you will see those people in those teen years now reaping what they've sown. And you're going to realize it pays to serve Jesus. And Unfortunately, we can't say, man, I really messed up from 13 or whatever. I'm going to get in the time capsule and go back to be 13 again and do it right next time. Life is brutal that we don't get a second chance that way, do we? But God's word is a lamp into our feet and a ladder into our path for that very reason. In Romans 8, verse 5 through 8, I want to read this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity, at war against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you you understand that? You, You can go through the motions of religiosity, but it really comes to the ability to pray when it really comes to the ability to seek God and to hear him in the word, when it really comes to have that spiritual power to share your faith or to live an obedient life in the midst of temptation, if you're walking according to your will, your way, your desires, your plan, your purpose, saying, God, bless it, bless it, bless it, you're going to understand that when there's going to be a point that those who are in the flesh can no longer keep it up. They'll eventually quit the facade of pretending to be a Christian. They'll eventually quit pretending they're praying. They'll eventually quit pretending they've ever walked in obedience. Spiritual power comes from a life of obedience. Where? When nobody else is looking. Not to obey when everybody's watching you, but to obey when nobody will ever know. Are you obeying God from the heart? Well, David is perplexed and in despair over this destruction of the people, and Gad the prophet comes to David in verse 18 and says, listen, you can build an altar, this altar of worship, even though you're a king, not a priest, in the threshing floor of the guy who lives right above you, the Jebusite, Aruna. Now understand, as you go to Israel, the city of David, right above that, unbeknownst to David, would be one day where the Holy of Holies would set. 
And there is a flat rock there to this day. It's under what's called the Dome of the Spirits. And it's a giant bedrock that somehow has moved up and up through the centuries. And I believe it's the same spot that Abraham offered Isaac. It's the same spot where David is doing the sacrifice. And ultimately, it'll be the same exact spot where the temple is built. And I believe the Holy of Holies set. And so God's turning this around for good by showing David the spot where he would have his son Solomon build the temple. But nevertheless, he goes and, and he says, man, I, I need to do this offering to the Lord. And so he goes to Aruna and says, I need to do it quickly so this, this destruction, this angel of death stops over the people. And Aruna says, David, you're the king. I love you. My land is your land. This rock is yours. All the oxen are right here threshing. That's where they walk in a circle around a bedrock to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's yours. Take it. And David was offended. And notice what he says in verse 24. He says, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Now listen to this art. Nor will I offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God with that which, what? Cost me nothing. And he gave him 50 shekels of silver, a very great price. I mean, I'm sure Aruna was stoked about this. And he did the burnt offering, the peace offering, and the Lord stopped the plague. Guys, let's just stop here a minute and we're ending. But let's just ask ourselves this question. Am I wanting an easy believism? I mean, I've had people say to me, well, I was going to go to church, but I couldn't find a parking place, so I left. What do you mean you couldn't find? Well, there were some, but they were way in the back. Well, I wanted to go to church, but whatever. The music is too loud. <laughs> the sermons are too long. Nobody ever says that. But uh, just hypothetically for other churches. <laughs> whatever it might be, and it's like, are you kidding me? I was just talking to a pastor yesterday in Alaska. <laughs> and right now, he's just, pray for us. It's dark here this time of year continuously. And everybody just sort of gets depressed. And it's hard to get anybody to do anything, even come to church Sunday morning, because it's just black all the time. And I'm like, dang, I forgot about that. <laughs> That, that, man, and this guy used to live right here in Southern California, and the Lord told him to go up there, and wow, I'm just like, Lord, I can go anywhere where it's like San Diego. <laughs> anywhere in the world that's exactly 70 degrees all year long. But it just, it just, again, says to me, it's like, I'll come to church as long as I can don't have to come on time. I can just sort of dwindle in whenever my body feels it. And I understand. I had small babies and kids. I had them spit up all over me. And so I'm heading out to church. And so I, I, I get that. But, but half, I mean, we, we went from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock service. And, and still half of the people come. After we've sang two songs, after we watched the announcements, after we've given of the offering, all of those are worship. And it, it just, it's again, I just, to me, it's, it's a worship that costs you less than what it should be costing you. 
It's, it's, it's a easy believing it. It's more comfortable for me to, to cruise in late than to be on time. I, I just think it's like, let's honor the Lord. Let, let's, let's do something different. I think there's just a heart that when people come early and they're sitting on the front row, I've experienced it in my own life. You worship in a different way. Back in the early Jesus movement, people would get to church hours early to get the front rows because when God's spirit poured out from the worship and from the word, it was greater. You, you get there two hours early, dude, you're in the back row. <laughs> and you're back there and God's spirit's pulling on you, but it's just not the same as on those front rows. So people just started bringing bean bags and sitting on the floor and, you know, literally putting their feet up on the stage while the sermon's going on because they just wanted to get close as they could, pressing in on the Lord. There's just something beautiful, isn't it, about that? Going into your closet, when I was in college, Brian Parrish, as you know well, was an RA, and he actually had a closet. And, and we just read that in the old King James says, pray in the closet. So Brian took everything out of the closet, and then he put up a timesheet. You know, 24 hours a day, we were going into his closet, shutting the door, praying. He's like, keep it down, I'm studying, you know. And, and uh, it's, there's just something beautiful about that, isn't there? And this is, again, it's a sacrifice to share your faith, to tell somebody that, you know what, without Christ, there is no hope. With Christ, there is total hope. You need to repent and, and, and come to Christ. He died for you and rose again. That's all you got to say. Well, it sounds like sort of complicated things. You know what, guys? God's Spirit's already been working on them. Night and day. Since the day they were born, God's been working on them. You're, you're just going in to pick what God's already been planted and watering. And so again, you know, we come here, it seems to be a financial thing. And, and here it's, it's, it's interesting that there's a lot of things in obedience that you can't pin down. It's like, are we praying enough? Well, what's that mean? I can't pin that down. Are you meditating the word? Well, what's, what's that mean? I can't pin that down. Are you sharing your faith? Yes, I did once in the last 10 years. Yes. I am. Well, you can't pin that down. But with tithing and offerings, it's math. <laughs> We're all getting ready to do our taxes. You can look. Did I give 10% or did I not? Did I give above that 10% as an offering to the missionaries or to the poor or to whatever other thing that God's put on your heart to do? You, you say, well, now, you know, I need that money. God makes it clear, you, as a believer, you won't prosper with that money. I remember one year there was a guy and he was wrestling with that and wrestling with that. And it came to January, the beginning of January, and his tithe that he didn't give, his car broke down, and it was exactly what he should have tithed to fix the car. And at the time he was wrestling, do I, can I afford it? Do I have faith? And God had the car break down to get fixed exactly the amount of tithe he should have gave to say, look, it's not about money, guys. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns all the silver and the gold is his. God, get tithe and offering is not about raising money. It's about raising children. It's about raising people who walk by faith in him. 
And I put several verses on here that I, I don't have time to go into all, but in Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 10, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. And in particular, what is he thinking about? Don't be wise in your own eyes. He tells us in verse 9, Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruit of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. In Proverbs 11, 24 and 25, there is one who scatters and increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, and it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven where moth can't destroy it, thieves can't steal it. And then he says something interesting here. He says in verse 22, that the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is good, your whole body's full of light. If your eye is dark, your whole body's full of darkness. If therefore the light that's in you is darkness, how great will that be? And you say, well, what's that have to do with money? We know it has to do with money because in verse 24, he comes back to the, the issue of giving again. He says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's the God of money. So interesting He's saying, and if you go back in Deuteronomy and in Proverbs, the Jewish expression for giving is a good eye, a clear eye. And he's saying here, if your eye is clear, you're giving the way you're supposed to give, then your whole body is full of light. But if you say, but I'm giving of God and watching the Sunday school, teaching Sunday school, I'm giving to God by going to the orphanage once a month. I'm, I'm serving the Lord by reading my Bible every day. I just can't give money. Then you know what? You're going to hate this message today then. <laughs> because those who are hanging on to their money are going, God, I hate you for asking for my money. I'm mad at you, God. You want 10%. Don't you know I need 100%? Don't you know I really need 120%? You're not giving me enough. And so you're going to love the one. Those of you who have come to your faith and maturity of giving of your tithes and offerings, you're going, guys, listen to Brian today. It'll set you free, man. Where your, heart, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Walk in faith. And then other people who are going, nah, that's what I thought church was all about, trying to get our money. There it is. You know what? God doesn't want it. <laughs> the Bible makes it clear. It can only come with a worshipful heart of faith that nobody's to give of necessity, but joyfully, hilariously. And if that's not your heart, keep it. Because it, it won't do any good if you give it all grumpy. <laughs> Here, God, I hope you happy. Here's my 10%. I won't be able to pay my electric bill this month. I hope you're happy about that, God. Keep it. God doesn't need it. God doesn't want it. We as a church don't want such a tainted offering. If we could look at your heart, we'd give it back to you. It's, it's not about the money. It's about the percent that it is to you. God could have said 30%, 40%. God could have said any number. It was just the minimum. Well, I'm giving exactly 10%. You know, that's not the heart either. <laughs> that's like the minimum. If you're doing that, then 
It's above that of an offering. Well, how much? It depends on how much you want to be blessed. <laughs> the generous soul will be made rich. 